Hello, Dave. Good to see you, man. How you doing? I'm doing good. I really am. I'm excited for some more nerd nerding out on paleo and deep time. I got to say, I'm really enjoying nerding out with all our guests and having fun. I look forward to it every time. And I yeah. am learning a lot as we go along. Yeah, me too. Uh, and it's crazy considering we're not scientists, but we have the top of the PhD pile talking to us and treating us as, I don't know if they treat us like equals, but maybe subpar <laughs> nerds, I think fellow paleo they nerds. They treat us like a ventriloquist and an artist should be treated, <laughs> huh? You know, I don't know. But yeah, they put up with us. It's cool. But we can talk the lingo enough with them, you know? We get yeah. by. We get by. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's late summer in Ketchikan there, and there's been no cruise ships. It's been void of tourists. So what's it like? You said you had tons of rain this, this season? It has been unrelenting. There have been maybe, I don't know, maybe a week of sunshine that we've had all summer long. If all told, it is overcast today. It's been raining. But I am thrilled that the humpies and the dog salmon are in the creek in force and that the spawning party is going on. They are going up the waterfall and watching them go into the fish ladder, the newly functioning fish ladders. Wait, you fixed. had something to do? Didn't you help design that or, or suggest well, it? No, no, the... no. I just was bugging the city folks. It'd be kind of cool if we if this was redone. And actually, they had some money for some head tax money to improve it. Oh, you mean there new... was an old fish ladder? Yeah, but it hasn't really been operating for the last, I don't know, 20 years. Tourists would come by the shop, they say, where's the fish ladder? And I'd point them up the way there and say, well, it's not really working, but go look at the concrete. Now, I've got a question about fish ladders. I know they were incorporated back in the great dam building era of the United States in the 30s when we dammed all our rivers yeah. to allow spawning fish to go upstream past the dam. But is there any history before that? Did the Native Americans uh, use fish ladders? I, I know they had fish traps. They had fish traps, but I cannot say with any of I do not know. I just do not know. So oh, wait, I, I there's no, is there a dam there in Ketchikan? There's not a dam. Well, why do you have a fish ladder? Well, I, <laughs> it's, well it's for the lazier fish. And actually... <laughs> You know, the, uh, the uh, maybe we're messing with evolution, but it, it just got kind of a little boost for it. But, but actually, it's it's a raging, uh, you know, when it's been raining so much, it's just raging water all the time. And, uh, you know, it kind of helps them a little bit. So this is augmenting it. So this is for the, uh, you know, the yeah, laid back. Yeah, but wait a minute. These fish were here for a million years before humans were ever building fish ladders. So why do you, this is really a tourist thing then? Well, maybe it was just some guys that, I don't know, had too much time on their hands and then maybe we are messing with the hand of nature when we shouldn't be. But, you know, I was thinking what's really cool about this whole thing and uh, the fish here in the creek is that this town was built around that creek, that particular creek. The only reason for this town to be here uh, is because of the fish creek. And it was a it was not actually a, a permanent settlement here with the uh, with the Clinket native americans that were here and are still here it was seasonal it was seasonal it was a fish yeah just one of the one of the uh the uh the streams that they would uh, the Tongas tribe in particular would work and uh but what is phenomenal is that these fish show up pretty much the same week every year after year after century after century thousands and thousands of years you can set your watch by them and here they are and it's 
you know, if anything, it's just that magical journey that these creatures make, you know, kind of give me hope for the future, man. These these fish, is there any kind of a counter or an electric eye? I mean, do you have any technology that, that says so many hundred fish go by per hour or does someone count them? Do you have any idea? On There are many salmon streams in Alaska that do have people that actually count and there are counters, but this is basically just another creek. There are thousands upon thousands of So how of many creeks. fish would come up in, in a week? A thousand? Ten thousand? You know, it's another case of I don't know. I probably it looks like there's a couple thousand at least in the creek right now. And I've seen that little tiny park up there where the fish kind of do their spawn. It's kind of... A, a man-made park up there in... in oh, yeah, yeah, city park, yeah. city park. But it's tiny. That place is absolutely tiny. So how, do do a 1,000 fish get up there? Well, that's just a little offshoot. And actually, the fish party, the sex party is happening, you know, out, out in the gravel <laughs> off of that. So it's <laughs> this massive orgy going on. There's love in the air. It's it's magical, man. So there's, it's really there's cool. There's milt in the air. <laughs> there it is. And it sort of reminds me of that T-shirt that I see that you're wearing today. Spawn till you die. Yeah, that was not on purpose. Thank you. For you listeners who have not seen Ray's Spawn Till You Die t-shirt, it's pretty iconic. Yeah. It's a pirate skull, and the crossbones are salmon. And people have worn this all over the world. It's kind of appeared in pop culture, in films, and print. And uh, it pretty much means to the nasty until your life is over. Well... Yeah, it's yeah. I guess it does, Dave. They just boil it down to you know. But <laughs> but it's I prefer it, it's a fish. It's a the, fish worship. You're you're worshiping fish. That's right. That's right. Well, you know. Anyways, like I said, this is a fish centric town, and and I draw fish. Well, I I love it, and I'm I'm very disappointed again. I have not been able to make it this year because of uh, the zombie pandemic, but. Uh, Hopefully soon. Now, I wanted to switch into some paleo news. I'm sure you've yeah. read about this. Um, yeah. and, and it's crazy how journalists report these things. And then that's the same headline I see. Crocodile that eats dinosaurs with teeth like the size of bananas. <laughs> Have you seen this headline? Uh, no, but there were massively, there are a lot of di- crocodiles. That, there's yeah. sarcosuchus, dinosuchus, yeah. all those big suchuses. That's a new one? The idea that these teeth are the size of bananas, all right, that's that's the thickness, and that's pretty pretty damn big. But when you look deeper into this article, they have only recovered probably maybe one twentieth of the front of the jaw, and there are no teeth. There's just teeth sockets. Hmm. And so paleontologists, through comparative anatomy, through other specimens are able to discern the size, the weight, the size of the teeth, and, and that that's what blows me away about how amazing paleontology is. Through such rare and, and tiny remains, they can draw an entire living creature and be pretty damn correct about it. Pretty darn correct about it. Yeah, you've got to do comparative anatomy. You've got to, you know, scale things up. You know, you have to... Uh extrapolate a lot of information from the size of scraps of things. So and, as a paleo uh, artist, Ray, the question is to you, have you yes. ever been given a modicum, a very small amount of bones, and then drew it, and then later on they find out, oh, it didn't didn't look like that? Well, you know, we have touched on this a few times, the giant spike tooth salmon. And I have personally been involved in extrapolating out the size of that beast because I've talked to some scientists and said, hey, 
I saw vertebrae that were almost three inches across. That's got to be the size of a marlin. Am I right? Can I extrapolate that out? So I actually work with uh, a scientist at the University of Michigan, Dr. Jerry Smith, who is like, uh, he is the freshwater fish paleo guy for, actually really for the planet. He's one of the leading guys. And he worked out, uh, showed me the math that he did. You can't just say just because the vertebrae is this small and this animal and it's this big, you got to extrapolate out because there are things that happen as you get larger. Right. You know, you work with gravity. So it's not just the simple math. Oh, it's three times as big. So, but he conservatively put it at about, about eight to 10 feet, but his first estimates were like 12 to 14 feet, which I thought were pretty cool. I got excited about that. But he, he dialed it back. But your misplacement of the teeth is a very minor mistake. Uh, it's not like well, you drew it with feathers and then you find out, oh, no, it's a fish with scales. I'm talking about have you ever had a massive mistake from a very, very little scant evidence in the beginning and then later on to find out that uh, it looks nothing like what you drew? Well, I live in fear <laughs> of, all, <laughs> of, uh, of the future. Of the future because... You know, speaking of feathers, man, uh, the feather dinosaur thing. You know, I grew up with scaly, scaly dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah. And I've been drawing my Triceratops and my, my uh, tr- you know, T-Rex all these years. Well, our guest Gary Starr built a T-Rex that was covered in beautiful, chicky, chicky... Proto feathers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's a big question. And, but that leads know, us to our guest today. You got it, man. <laughs> oh, dude. Exactly. All right. She is awesome and amazing. Uh, you know who I'm talking about. Yes, yes. Jingmei O'Connor. Jingmei. And I am so thrilled. We have not... I've never met her, man. And But she's got a reputation as like being really cutting-edge scientists. And she's got, uh, she's got a lot of street cred. She's just cool all around. We'll dive right in and we'll nerd out. We'll go way deep because she knows more about feathered dinosaurs than anyone else on the planet, I'm betting. Or she's at least up there in that league. So let's call her up, Dave. All right. Jingmei O'Connor in Pasadena, California, I believe, right? Yes, currently, but not for long. Yeah, I want to get into that. You are about to go to some most amazing new job somewhere in the Midwest. Yeah. So um, after 11 years um, being an expat living in Beijing, China, which is where I would normally be right now if it wasn't for this damn pandemic, um, I got a job stateside. So I'll be like making my glorious return and um, I'll be starting at the Field Museum in Chicago as their fossil reptile curator or associate curator, but wow. I'll take it. So you get to play with Sue, the Tyrannosaurus. Yeah. I mean, if you, if anybody wants to see Sue, like they have to like come through me and I'm still like kind of blown, <laughs> blown away by that. I also need to learn everything there is to learn about Sue before I start my job. Yeah. So. Have you seen that, <laughs> that new sculpture they have of Sue, the life size with a, with a dinosaur in its mouth, with a prey in its mouth? Yeah, I saw that. Uh, you do not want to know how much that thing costs. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I've seen pictures of it. And um, I don't know. I have to admit, I, I like 
the skeleton version better, but that's just me. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, you guys like your bones. So how did you become a paleo nerd? What what started it for you? Um, so unlike most paleo nerds, I, I came to the scene very late. So, um, you know, when I was young, I had no real strong interests. You know, I kind of jumped from possible career to possible career. I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a veterinarian. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, and then my mom went back to grad school to do a PhD in geology when I was like eight. So I got immersed in geology and uh, decided I wanted to be a geologist pretty much just because I wanted to like, you know, please my mom. And also, I think if you know a lot about something, it makes you confident. So you tend to like these things more. So I knew a lot about geology. So anyways, I went to Occidental College, uh, the only declared freshman geology major, and uh, with no idea what I wanted to study within geology. So, so you went there by accident? Yeah, they gave me the best financial that aid was package. But then my dad loved to tell me I was an oxymoron. He never got sick of that joke for the whole three years I was there. That's a good one. Um, but it really worked out because there's this guy, Donald Prothero, who I think people uh, is fairly well known in, in paleontology circles. He's an extremely prolific writer. He writes also a lot of textbooks. So anyways, he was my um, advisor simply because of like, you know, the way they break up the students by their last name. So he's my advisor. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I want to be a volcanologist. Like volcanoes are cool. Like, I, I mean, I was just choosing something out of a hat, you know. And uh, but then I took his class, um, historical geology, which, you know, basically takes you from the Big Bang all the way up to like present day Earth. And of course, as part of that tale, there's the evolution of life. And, you know, so uh, I just got totally hooked on evolution from that class. And I told him immediately, like, I want to be a paleontologist. And he was like, well, maybe you should wait until you take paleontology first. So next semester, I took paleontology and I'm like, yeah you know, still want to do it. Like I didn't even wait till the class was over, like three weeks in, I was like, yep, yep. Still want to do this. And, you know, he was like, don't do it. Like it's a very tough profession. It's highly competitive. It's thankless. You know, he like really tried <laughs> to dissuade me. Uh, but I wanted, I, you know, my response was like, I'm going to do what my mom did. She taught me to follow her passion because she was originally going to go back to school for something else, like a quick and dirty social science degree to just become like a social worker and, you know, get a easy money basically. But then last minute she was like, no, geology is what I love. I'm going to do geology. So yeah, like I learned that lesson from her to do what you love. That's, that's more important well, usually than anything when else. People tell you not to do something. You want to do it even more. Yeah, maybe there was a little bit of that in there. But um, yeah, at the time, it was really like, I don't care about money. I just I want to do what I'm passionate about. And you know, there's been like one or two brief moments where I'm like, I sure do care about money right now. <laughs> uh, but you know, for the most part, I'm really happy with my choice. I've also been one of the very lucky one's students to actually survive. Like there for every, you know, the 1000s of paleo students there are out there, there's like a couple hundred jobs, you know, so it's a very low success rate. So I've been really, really, really lucky. And 
But also, you know, I think part of that is because I took this leap and I went to China where there's just amazing fossils. And, you know, you don't know how many people I've told to come to China. Like, they're like, oh, I can't get a job wherever I am. Like, paleo, it's so hard. And I'm like, come to China. You know, we can, there's tons of projects that I could, you know, that I could work with you on with your expertise. Actually, well, so you were in Don's class, Don uh, Prothero's classes. Did you actually get to go out into the field at that time? Did you get a taste for field work or... Did you get a taste for field work with your mother when you were growing up? Yeah. So, um, you know, we were, we weren't very, you know, we're kind of poor. That's why my mom had to go back to school. So our, um, while she was in school, our family vacations were her reconnaissance trips for like field trips that she had to take students on, or if she had to go collect samples for her PhD, like that was the new family vacation. I mean, we always went camping for vacations anyways. So, um, so yeah, I got my taste of field work young. And then in Southern with, California? Um, yeah, but also like, so, yeah, mostly in Southern California and the deserts there. But also, you know, we would go into Nevada or Arizona. And, I mean, my mom never took us. Her um, PhD study area was in Wyoming, but she never took us that far. She went there by herself. But uh, but yeah, you know, I, I, I was a little bit of a rock hound. Like if you see in our room, we have like huge glass cases filled with minerals that we, we all collected them when we were kids. My little brother was obsessed with trilobites, actually. He has a really impressive trilobite collection uh-huh. that I'm super jealous of now. But uh-huh. at the time, I, I just wasn't interested in fossils. That came much later. Um, but then, yeah, with Don, we also went into the field and uh, I was a field assistant for him one summer as well. And he took us like all across the United States. And that was a really awesome experience. So that's really cool that he was such an inspirational uh, professor. How did you make the great turn then to China and birds? Where did that happen? So, um, you know, everybody asks, like, why, why do you end up studying the thing that you end up studying? And it's basically has to do with where you go to grad school, because you apply to all these grad schools, you only get into a select, you know, a portion of them. And then at each one, there are just a few people you can work with. And each person there has their own speciality and their own projects that they would want their student to focus on. Would you work with them? Right. So um, basically, I had three choices because I didn't I got rejected from half my program. So I could either work with Ryosuke Motani and study marine reptiles, which is actually my true love. Um, Or I could work with um, Luis Kiape, study fossil birds, or with Wang Xiaoming and study mammals. And this is where I did, you know, where my my practical side came out. And I, you know, I thought I was making a practical choice that the best thing for me to be a successful paleontologist would be to work on something that's really new. And there's a lot of new material coming out. So I chose to work on uh, fossil birds with Luis Chiappe. So. Hey, by the way, Dr. Luis Chiappe is an Argentine paleontologist who is best known for his discovery of the first sauropod nesting sites in the Badlands of Patagonia and for his work on the origin and early evolution of Mesozoic birds. He's currently the head of the Natural History Museum of LA County's Research and Collections Department, and he's one all-around cool paleo guy. Ray, you know Luis. I think I ate a barbecue in his backyard last yeah, year yeah. with Kirk Johnson from the Smithsonian. That's right. Yeah, I braved to bring a ventriloquist to uh, Luis's house. And that was a fun evening. But did you actually work at the L.A. County Museum of Natural History with Luis and earn your Ph.D. at the same time? How does that work? 
So um, I was at USC. That's like where I formally got my degree. But USC is exactly is like right across the street from the yeah so um i had an office at usc and i had an office in the museum and i was a a graduate student in residence at the museum yeah so that worked out really well and i had like my skateboard and i would just ride it in between the two offices i would even ride my skateboard in the naturalist museum which they probably did not like (laughs) um i mean i spent most of my time there when i wasn't taking classes or having to ta at usc uh it was really awesome being in the museum you know it's just such a cool feeling to like you know, be this workaholic who shows up at five in the morning and nobody's there and the museum's all dark and you're, you know, and then you leave when it's like 9 p.m. And again, you can just walk through the exhibits like totally, you know, they're completely empty. Everything's dark. It's just uh, it's a really cool. I don't know. It's it's a feeling that I really liked. I, I love the feeling of being in a natural. And you got museum. to roam the collections also. Yeah, actually, my office was in a corner of the Mesozoic collection room. Hey, well, let's go deep nerd now, shall we? You are one of the experts on the planet, if not one of the most renowned experts in the planets. Why, thank you. (laughs) On birds and dinosaurs, I want to ask you this. When I look out the window and I see a bird flying by, and I'm talking to the kids too, and I look at the bird and I say, that is a dinosaur. Can I say that with complete confidence? Yes, definitely. So all birds are dinosaurs, but not all dinosaurs are birds. And it's just as simple as that, right? Can you walk us through our understanding of birds as dinosaurs from the very first Archaeopteryx? And Can I go 230 million years ago first? Okay, go ahead. The first flying reptiles were pterosaurs, and they evolved in the uh, right after the Triassic extinction at the beginning of the Jurassic. Mm-hmm. So my question, before we get into Mesozoic birds and avian dinosaurs... And um, scansoriopterygians. We said it together. We get to make a wish. Say it again. Scansoriopterygian. Right? Yeah. Before we get to there. So why did pterosaurs evolve flight? Now, they're flying reptiles. They're not birds. They're not related to birds. Why do they evolve flight? And that's almost, what, uh, 60 million years before birds. Yeah. So, I mean, why why anybody evolves anything, it has to do with the circumstances that that animal is living in, right? And honestly, it's really difficult to answer that question. So it must have been an animal living in some niche where some form of like proto-flight was advantageous, which then natural selection eventually produced a form that's capable of full-on powered flight. So yes, there were already flying reptiles in existence, but you know, to add to this complexity, flight evolved in dinosaurs like four or five times. So, you know, why did flight evolve so many times when it was already like the aerial niche was already occupied? There was, they would have had to compete with pterosaurs. So it wasn't like there was just this empty, you know, this opportunity available to them. And so we really don't understand why flight evolved so many times, why flight evolved in any particular group. I mean, that's just, it's a really, difficult question to answer well other than that like, doesn't that lead us to the three evolutionary reasons potential reasons why flight evolved which is tree down ground up that's a really primitive way uh no no offense sorry but that, that that's like i'm, that's, a, I'm uh, a nerd <laughs> correct me no, but please I, 
Yeah, I mean, well, that's that's what we were taught when I started grad school. It's like trees down or ground up. But the thing is, like any time... But define that first, though, before we shoot it down. So um, before we realized that dinosaurs had evolved flight multiple times, we thought that the idea or like the research question, how did birds evolve from non-avian dinosaurs and how did flight evolve within the dinosauria? We thought of those as essentially the same question, right? So if you wanted to understand how birds originated, you could understand how flight evolved in dinosaurs. And so there were two competing hypotheses. And one was the trees down hypothesis. And this essentially said, you know, evolving flight against gravity is really difficult. So if you're going to evolve flight, it's much easier to just go with gravity, which means that you climb up somewhere high or you gain height in some way, and then you glide downwards and eventually you evolve uh, powered flight or you just continue gliding, whatever. So um, this idea said that uh, small proto birds, like non-avian dinosaurs, most closely related to birds, were small animals that climbed up in trees. They already had feathers on their forelimbs, which evolved for some other reason, maybe insulation or ornamentation. We don't really know. And um, these uh, feathers on their forelimbs helped them when they were jumping between branches, so they could maybe jump further or you know glide a little bit. So this produced natural. This uh, resulted in natural selection, selecting for larger feathered surfaces on their forelimbs, so that they become you know gliders and eventually they uh, evolve powered flight. So this is important because it hypothesizes that flight evolved through a gliding phase. Powered flight evolved through a gliding phase. And then there's the competing hypothesis, which is called the ground up hypothesis, which is always the one I was taught to follow by Luz Chiappe. And this said, well, hey, if you look at all these small feathered dinosaurs that are supposedly closely related to birds, they're cursorial animals. They live on the ground. So the hypothesis Wait, is, is that, that what cursorial the, means? Yeah, cursorial means running on the ground. So it's like a terrestrial animal that's, you know, that's spending most of its time in bipedal locomotion on the ground or quadrupedal, I suppose. So a squirrel, birds, a squirrel and, is cursorial and, if it's not a gliding squirrel. No, well, a ground squirrel is cursorial, but a tr- most squirrels are scansorial. They're climbing. They live in oh. trees, right? Yeah. So you have these like small dinosaurs, like say, you know, at the time it was like Deinonychus, Velociraptor. These were the small bipedal theropod dinosaurs that at the time we knew of that were most closely related to birds. And they're all clearly adapted for running on the ground. So again, you have small, you have feathers, short feathers on the forelimb that have evolved from some other reason that we also still don't fully understand. And as this animal's running after prey or trying to escape because it's the prey, the feathers on its forelimbs are helping it to run faster and jump higher. So then again, natural selection produces larger and larger proto-airfoils on the forelimbs. And then eventually these airfoils are so large that the force that they can generate counterbalances like the body weight, essentially. And then now you, if, once it becomes big enough to counterbalance that weight, you have like excess lift that's produced that then can allow you to fly. So this hypothesis infers that flight evolves, powered flight evolves directly without a gliding, intermediate gliding stage, which makes a lot of sense to me because if you look at an animal that glides and then you look at powered flight, they're totally different things. Like if you're gliding, you want to hold your airfoil out taunt, right? You know, your forelimb is not moving. It's not a dynamic form of flight. So how can you go from evolving to have like stiff, arms holding out your airfoil and then to having this very complicated flight stroke that we see in birds. So um, I tend to, you know, at the time, I tended to go more with the ground up hypothesis. But anytime you see a dichotomy, a red light should go off in your mind, like there's something wrong there, because it's never 
this or that. Either or, right. Yes, evolution is so much more complex than that. And natural selection is so much more complex. There's not just one evolutionary pressure that you are experiencing. You're experiencing all these different evolutionary pressures to reproduce, to, you know, feed, to whatever. You know, it's a lot of different things. It's not just one being being like, I right. must fly, I must fly, I must fly, you know. So the newest updated version of, you know, how did birds evolve flight is basically a combination of these two hypotheses, which I think is really neat. So, I know this um, one. It, I know this one. Oh, all right. Yeah, you're going to get the gold star. <laughs> Ontogenetic Transitional Wing Theory, OTW, right? Oh. Did I get it? Very nice. Huh? I've been practicing that. Excellent. I'm very impressed. Say that word again, but, but uh, break it down. Ontogenetic transitional wing theory. What does ontogenetic mean? So ontogenetic, um, so ontogeny is basically all the changes you go through, like when you, from, you know, the first cell of your, you know. It's an evolutionary development. change. No, it's developmental, developmental change with age. It's like when you're in the womb, right? Okay. Yeah, so for example, from when you're a baby to when you become an adult, that's ontogeny. Yeah, that's ontogenetic ontogenetic change yeah and then also even your change to senescence that's also ontogenetic change senescence. so senescence is when you become old and decrepit like, like, yeah. like, <laughs> like me, me. Me. It's happening. Yeah. I'm such a party animal that it's like happening to me like way too soon. And I'm like, my knees are all chingered and I'm like, oh no. Yeah. Hey, I'm already there. I'm only actually 32. I mean, look at me. But anyways. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so walk us through this. How is it a little bit of both? So this hypothesis that basically came from studying some living birds. So they took these little baby birds of a species that is uh, like a primarily cursorial bird. So like, um, I think they're closely related to quails. They're called chuckers, but you know, whatever. So like a quail like bird. So when, you know, these babies are precocial, meaning that when they're born, they leave the nest and they run around, follow their parents, you know, and they kind of feed on their own, but their parents protect them, which is compared to a altricial bird, which just stays in the nest until it's basically full size like and then it flies out of the nest. Exactly. So these baby birds have wings, but their wings when they're babies are really small and they don't have flight feathers, right? If you've like seen a baby duck, you know what I'm talking about, right? So these scientists basically looked at how these baby birds use their wings as they develop towards the wing going from a baby wing to a functional adult wing. Right. So they showed that these babies like so these wings are not capable of flight, but they still have function. Right. So what is the function? So they took these baby birds and they were like chase them up inclines of increasing steepness. Right. And they found that as the birds like once you reach like a, a 30 degree incline, I forget exactly what it is. But like at your, once you reach a certain incline, they start flapping their wings to oh. help them get traction as they run up this slope. And they can even flap their wings to the point that they can run up like a hundred and like a hundred degree slope. So like, you know, like going upside down, basically, like it's crazy. And so this, the first version of the ontogenetic wing, transitional wing hypothesis was actually called wing assisted incline running. Cause this is the first thing they realized. You could chase these guys up the, up these um, inclines and they use their wings, but the flight stroke, the stroke they used was slightly different than 
a, a like a, an actual powered flight flight stroke. So this, you know, could represent possibly what the evolutionary precursor to the flight stroke was in non-avian dinosaurs, right? But then they went further with this hypothesis and they took these baby birds and they dropped them and they found that if they dropped them as they were falling, they would still use their wings, you know? So basically this is like ground up is running up the slopes and flapping your wings and the trees down is like being dropped from a tree and being like, ah, wow. flapping your wings to like slow your descent. And they showed that these proto wings had function, you know, like they, so they're functional even though they can't be used for flight. So this created, you know, an idea of what the proto wing stroke might have been for. And then what's really interesting is, you know, as these birds develop ontogenetically and become more and more mature, they're, they start to have, um, longer feathers on their wings, the same as we see evolving in non-avian dinosaurs going from small feathers to larger feathers. They also develop, like when they're babies, they have, they don't have an ossified sternum and the breast muscle is very small, but as they be uh, become adults, the sternum ossifies, it becomes really large, the breast muscles become really large. So again, this is mirroring the evolutionary changes from a non-avian dinosaur to a bird. And so, I mean, this is like an idea that's very old, right? That ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. So yeah. this is, yeah, so this is basically so growth, applying that. The growth of from baby to adult mimics the evolutionary change from non, let's say, a non-flying dinosaur to an avian dinosaur. That's the hypothesis. Yeah, right. I mean, all we can really say right, right. now is it is a hypothesis that is supported by the fossil data. Wow. That we have available. <laughs> Ching Man, I'm just kind of picturing, you know, going into the old chicken coop and kind of chasing the chickens around. They start to flap to get away, but then that led to you. You were part of that group that actually strapped little wings to an ostrich and ran them around to see if they could get a little lift. So um, I will not claim that I came up with that idea. Um, that was all these, these crazy engineers. Uh, and so we were approached at the IVPP by a group of scientists from Tsinghua University. And uh, there's actually a lot of engineers who study living animals as a way to improve flying machines. So, you know, they study hummingbirds to figure out how they can make drones work better, things like that. So um, they... They wanted to study extinct flying animals as a way to help make better flying contraptions. I mean, it's. It, I mean, it's kinda, I, can, I can understand it, but it, it's it's a bit of a stretch well, because no, they're it, so. It, it makes sense because uh, for nature to have developed flight and powered flight with just, with very little fuel. It takes very little fuel. I mean, obviously, the needs of powered flight are great for an organism but way less than the amount of gallons you need in aviation fuel to get a Cessna off the ground. Yeah. Well, I mean, like powered flight is the most physically demanding form of locomotion utilized by any animal. And a hummingbird has to feed like every four hours or it dies because it needs so much energy. So I actually don't really know if you would like convert the energy of a hummingbird per grams of its weight and compare that to the, you know, fuel used by Cessna. Like, I actually really don't know how the comparison would break down. I do know that human forms of, like, of, our, of locomotion are extremely primitive, like, especially space travel. I mean, all we're doing is basically strapping ourselves to a bunch of dynamite and exploding ourselves into space. It's like... Uh, <laughs> so what happened with the experiment? Did, uh, the, did the ostrich show any kind of lift? First of all, the hypothesis that... So, okay, let me back up, sorry. So, Caudipteryx is the most primitive dinosaur with proto-wings on its forelimbs. And if you look at this animal, it's got, like, big old chunky legs and short 
uh, four limbs and it has his wings on them. So based on these proportions, we assume that Caudipteryx was not capable of flight. But it's never been actually proven quantitatively, right? So uh, one thing from this experiment is that it proved without a doubt that Caudipteryx was definitely not volant. It was not capable of any form of flight. Um, but it did also show that, yes, these small wings did have incipient aerodynamic qualities. So, uh, for example, if the wings are held out to the side while it's running, it, it maintains a greater balance. So it makes it easier to maintain your balance, I guess is a better way of saying it. Um, it's also was shown that moving the wings during maneuvers, like turning, could also be advantageous to like tuck one wing in and, you know, like that kind of thing. So it showed that for bipedal locomotion, having proto wings is advantageous for locomotion, which would then, you know, then natural selection would select for larger wings. So it did support that hypothesis that a bipedal animal with proto-wings would, that natural selection might enlarge those wings because there are aerodynamic properties that are advantageous to bipedal locomotion. Right. Does that make yeah. sense? And, yeah, and also yeah. the ability to escape predation. Yeah, I mean, if you can run faster and also you maintain balance easier, which means you're losing less energy as you run, these are all things that are advantageous. But honestly, I think that the reason feathers first appeared on the forelimbs in this elaborated morphology, because you go from an animal like a covered in dino fuzz, right? Something like Sinoceropteryx or even maybe bait like relatives of T-Rex. They have these feathers that are actually more like, like hair. They're proto feathers that consist of single filaments and only, and then you, you eventually see the appearance of more complex feather morphologies, like the type of feather we see in the living bird is called a pinaceous feather. So this feather, the appearance of this feather in the fossil record coincides with the appearance of this feather being used in an arrangement on the forelimb in a wing-like arrangement, so like a proto-wing. So but but the not, a, most not basal... a flying wing, but a proto-wing. What's yeah, that feather so called? It's what... got a spine in the middle and it has the... So it's called a pinaceous feather. And Why? Uh, so the spine... Why? The... I don't know. <laughs> I think pinaceous has something to do... Like, I mean, okay, that's a Sounds very cool. good question. I'm embarrassed. I don't know. But uh, there must be... pinaceous. Audacious pinaceous. Yeah, I like yeah, it. That's, let's go with okay. that. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so we actually call all dinosaurs that have those feathers, they form a monophyletic group. And we call that penny raptora. Because it's like many raptoran dinosaurs with pinaceous feathers. And the most primitive member of this group is Oviraptorosaurus. And they have already little proto wings. So Caudipteryx that I was just talking about is a basal Oviraptorosaur. So, you know, why did proto wings, why did the wing arrangement first evolve and then get exacted for flight? But wait, when, right, when was the first proto feather, like the little fuzz, found in the fossil record? And then when was the first pinaceous feather found? Um, the first one was found in a small theropod dinosaur from China in 1996, I believe. That was when I it was Sinoceropteryx or Sinoornithosaurus. I'm sorry, I always get the two confused. Is that like, the J-hole biota? At, uh, yes, this is from the Jehol biota. So, um, and then it's mostly from the Jehol that all these other feathered dinosaurs have been found. There's actually only one or two other f uh, feathered dinosaur specimens that are from outside of China. I know there's like one in Canada, and I think there's one that was recently published somewhere else, but uh, I'm not sure. Archaeopteryx like from Germany. Sorry, yeah, touche, you got me there. <laughs> but um, I'm talking about non non avian right, dinosaurs. Right. Uh, and what but, what time frame was the Jehol with the two biotas in China? 
China. So the Jeho biota, uh, well, the Jeho biota was like 135 to 120 million years ago, but birds don't appear in That's early Cretaceous. Like, and also yeah, early Cretaceous. And birds and feathered dinosaurs don't appear towards like about 130 for the oldest birds anyways. And I think for dinosaurs, they don't appear to like 125. Obviously, they were there. We just don't have them in the fossil record. And then there's an older biota that's found in very in almost the same region that's called the Yan Liao biota, also called the Daohu Go biota. And it was about 166 to 161 million years old. That's middle Jurassic, right? Yeah. So these, the animals from the Yan Liao biota are older than Archaeopteryx, and it includes the Scansoriopter rigids, uh, which are not closely related at all. And it also includes Anchiornis, which is a troodontid-like dinosaur that is probably very, very closely related to Archaeopteryx, but also probably couldn't fly. So this provides like the perfect, you know, evidence in the fossil record that there were small feathered dinosaurs um, around before Archaeopteryx. Because before, you know, when people were in the 1960s, for example, or 1970s, saying that birds evolved from small bipedal theropod dinosaurs, we didn't have any small bipedal theropod dinosaurs that were older than Archaeopteryx. So this was called the temporal paradox. People said, oh, birds can't be related to these guys because they don't have, we don't have them in the fossil record, you know, before birds. But now because of the Yanlao biota, we have all these animals that provide perfect, you know, examples for what the closest non-avian dinosaur relative might have been. I see if I could jump in for a second. I've heard that argument before from some of my bird friends that, wait, they can't be related to raptors because raptors don't really show up until the late Cretaceous. And here you're saying birds, when we got Archaeopteryx back in the Jurassic, there was the temporal, the time thing. You're saying that with creatures that have been found in China, that we have those early raptors now, right? Yes. Yeah. There's no longer a temporal paradox. Like that's been eliminated. The temporal paradox. I like that. Wait, is that from Star Trek? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know. I'm a Star Wars fan. Sorry. Sorry, Dave. So actually, have you been able to go to, you have been to China to see the collections. Do you go out to the field and pry up the rocks and find bird dinosaur fossils yourself? So I, I have been in the field uh, a bunch, but um, so, you know, when I first showed up at the IVPP in the fall of 2009, they had just finished their summer field work and they go out to the Liaoning area where all, the, you know, where the Jeho biota and the Yang Liao biota are both come from. And they spend like 40 days there and they work like 10 hours a day, just sitting in a quarry, just splitting slabs. And they were like, yeah, next summer you'll come with us. And I was like, that sounds awful. But, you know, I understand that as a paleontologist, I, I need to do this. I need to experience this is it, in right? Mongolia, right? No, this is to the east of Inner Mongolia, actually. Um, so, you know how like uh, China is a chicken, you know, this on a map and, and uh, the beak is Korea. So it's kind of like, like, and then there's like the gobble thing that comes down. So like that, the gobble thing is part of Liaoning province Liaoning, where the right, right. Jehol and yeah, yeah. So I actually have never done field work in Liaoning. I mean, I've gone to visit the fossil sites and I've, you know, picked around in the talus and found some insects and plant material, but I've never done proper field work. But the, there's one other locality, early Cretaceous locality in China that's produced a large number of fossil birds. 
And actually, the first ever Mesozoic bird from China comes from this locality. So this is the Xiago Formation in Gansu Province. So this is way out in the west. It's actually very cool. The locality is very close to the westernmost extent of the Great Wall of China. So I got to like see what the Great Wall looks like in the middle of the desert. Interesting fact: the Great Wall is really short out there because it only has to be high enough to keep. The sheep from moving <laughs> forward, because in the desert the Mongolians have to travel with a food source, so they would travel with flocks of sheep. And if there's this little wall that the sheep can't get over, that stops the army. Question about all these biotas. So there's incredible preservation of birds and avian dinosaurs. What other animals were found that had the same exquisite preservation? They must have found other things, insects and 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 soft-bodied impressions. So the uh, Yan, so the Jehol biota had, you know, the first feathered dinosaur was found in 1996, and the first bird was found in 1992, actually by my boss Zhou Zhonghe. But before that, for like 80 years, maybe even longer, the Jehol biota had been really important to fish paleontologists and also paleontologists studying insects and plants and other things like that. So my,、uh, you know, my current boss Zhou Zhonghe was with Zhang Miman, who's a very, very famous、uh, Chinese. Fish paleontologist, and、uh, they're doing field work in Liaoning, and because he's going to do his masters with her and study fish, and he finds the first bird. And、uh, Miman is just like, this is really important. Don't study fish. Like, I'm not going to hold you to an agreement to work with me. Like, go off and and study, you know, study these birds because this is important. At the same time, a farmer finds another bird that's almost exactly the same, and Paul Serino ends up studying it. But then, with the discovery of feathered dinosaurs four years later, it just kicked off this huge,、um, you know, flurry of activity in this area because the feathered dinosaur was found by a farmer also, and he was able to sell it and make some money. So then, all these farmers started to look for fossils, and I mean, that's why there's thousands of fossils that have been found from this area, thousands of exquisite fossils. Because if you had to rely only on paleontologists, I mean, there would still be、there's、hundreds of exquisite fossils.、Incentive. But there wouldn't, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's crazy stories about it. Like you know, there's stories of like a farmer who. Sold a fossil and then drunk himself to death with Chinese spirits <laughs> with Baijiu. Like that day, I was just so excited, and and it's actually illegal. So right now, there's a lot of farmers in jail for collecting because they're trying to stop、wow. it for whatever reason. I don't really understand. So these biotas are they ancient lake sediments like Kemmerer or Wyoming? Yeah, they're what we call volcano lacustrine deposits. So it's it's lakes like the fossils are mostly in lake deposits, but it's punctuated with volcanic activity. So every once in a while, you、um, have like a mass Massive、uh, mortality event. So these are freshwater. It's freshwater, and yeah. And so the cool thing about lakes is lakes are considered what we call a taphonomic window for preserving really delicate fossils. So and birds are very delicate fossils because aerodynamic pressures limit their body size, so they're not very big compared to other dinosaurs. And also their bones are hollow because that helps reduce body mass and is more advantageous for flight. So birds are extremely rare in the fossil record, except in these types of lacustrine deposits, like for example, you know the Green River formation. 
formation in the, you know, in, in North America, which also has all these exceptionally preserved fossils. So it, the reason lakes are so such great places to preserve delicate fossils is because the bottom of the lake is usually anoxic. Without oxygen. Yeah, so there's no scavengers living there that can like destroy the fossil. Instead, there's things like biofilms or anaerobic bacteria that are actually good for preserving fossils and especially good for preserving soft tissues, which is why we also get things like lungs and feathers and other cool traces preserved in these, in these uh, specimens. Exactly. And the other thing about lakes is that lakes are fed by rivers. So rivers have a lot of energy and they're carrying sediment. But as soon as they reach a lake, which has low energy, basically no energy, right? They the water entering the lake loses its energy and drops its sediment load. So this means that there's constant deposition in a lake. So you fall into a lake and sink to the bottom. Not only are you not likely to be scavenged, but you will surely be buried because of the constant sedimentation just rate. It's always there. Right? Oh, exactly. Awesome. So, so really fast, just wanted to talk about other things that have been found yeah. in the Jehol uh, biota. So we have feathered dinosaurs like Caudipteryx, um, a whole diversity of birds. We have lots of um, aquatic reptiles, like little tiny freshwater, like plesiosaur-like things. They're yeah. not related to plesiosaurs, oh, oh, but that's what they look like. There's Cachosaurus, exactly. Cachosaurus. Yeah. And I own one. Yeah, I have one too. And, uh, and I like a Hylophosaurus, things like that. I don't have one. Um, of course, there's also mammals that preserve their hair what? and all. And yeah, very cool with soft tissues. There's Cretaceous mammals? Yeah, wow. yeah. Cretaceous, Cretaceous mammals. mammals. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and also, the, you know, you've heard about the Cretaceous mammal that was feeding on dinosaurs. That's also from the Jehol, like wow. Repenomamus. Yeah, so I mean, it's not yeah. that big. It's like the size of a raccoon, but it had some baby Cetacosaur remains preserved in its stomach. Cetacosaurus, we know how to say that now. I do. Cetacosaurus. You've talked about dinosaurs evolving flight three, four, five times. What group of dinosaurs did actually give rise to birds? And then let's maybe discuss that one really weird group that's got the membranous wings. You know, you love it. But where do birds come from in the dinosaur lineage? So I would say, I mean, we don't know for sure, but I would say that birds are nested within troodontids and within a particular group of troodontids called the Anchiornithiforms. Define troodonty. So, uh, oh, that's hard. Honestly, uh, well, I'm not. They were bipedal velociraptors. Wrong again, Dave. No, so, so velociraptor is a dromaeosaur, a dromaeosaurid rather, sorry. So Dromaeosauridae and Troodontidae together form a group called Deinonychosauria, and they're then sister taxon to Oviraptorosauria, which together forms Peniraptora, all the dinosaurs with pinaceous feathers. So Troodontids are very similar to Dromaeosaurs, but with some pretty important morphological differences. One major difference is that no Troodontid has an ossified sternum just like Archaeopteryx. Hmm? Now, it's also, this is a little controversial, but it's very possible that what we call aves, like, you know, all these stem birds, uh, some people say aviale, and I say boo, um, but <laughs> it could be that what we call aves is actually paraphyletic. The evidence just can't, like... Wait, wait, what does paraphyletic mean? Basically, it means that it's multiple independent origins of a bird-like form that then we think forms a natural group, but it doesn't. So for example, like uh, if you think about modern paleognath birds, there's a group called the ratites, right? And they're all these flightless paleognath birds like emus, cassowary, ostriches. So we call them this group called ratites. But actually, loss of flight evolved independently and all these different flightless birds. So they don't form a true 
monophyletic group. I mean, in the bigger picture, they're all paleognaths. So they are paleo, you know, if you said they're all paleognaths, that's monophyletic. That is a true group. Wait, but if you take. Was an ostrich, did it have flight and then lose it? Yes. The paleognath birds that we know of in the Paleocene, like 50 million years ago, 55 million years ago, we can tell from their skeletons that they were, they were totally volant. They were flying birds. Ah, a new word of the day, volant, which means engaged in or having the power of flight, which is kind of the opposite of the word I just learned earlier, which is cursorial, meaning the ground runners. The earliest bird was volant. So any bird that doesn't fly has secondarily lost its flight. And it's just a coincidence that all the paleognaths that are still alive are all flightless. I mean, well, tinamous can fly, and tinamous have very different morphologies. Never heard than of a tinamou. Flightless. Uh, a tinamou, yeah, they're uh, well, they're in like South America, and they kind of just look like quails, I guess. So, Jingmei, this idea that troodontids—do you say troodont or troodont? Troodont. Troodont. All right, yeah. troodontids. Troodontids, uh, is that controversial, the idea that birds are coming right from there? Is this a theory of yours? or Right now, the only way we have of saying how animals are related is to do a cladistic analysis. Right. And a cladistic analysis means that you basically take the entire morphology of an animal and you reduce it to numerical code. And then you do that for all these other animals. And then you have these fancy algorithms that like takes the morphology that's now new numbers and tries to relate it to each other, depending on what algorithm you choose. So I usually choose parsimony. So that's the idea that a feature is most likely to evolve once. And then if you, if you have a feature in 10 animals, it most likely evolved in their common ancestor and was inherited by them versus them all evolving the feature so, independently. Wait, name 10 things of, course, of a bird you would turn into numbers. My current matrix that I have yet to publish that tells me that birds are troodontids, which oh. is why, like, you know, I mean, I've been talking about it for a while. Okay, like, it's, right. it's a massive project, which is why I haven't published yet, but it's a thousand characters, roughly. Wow. And I mean, so, you know, just for premaxillary teeth, you have like 30 characters, you know, like the premaxillary teeth, are they all the same? Where are they located got in it, the premaxilla? Like, what do the serrations look like? Are they, you know, whatever, it's a million different characters. So you would basically say, like, um, premaxilla unfused zero uh fused only proximally one fused throughout its entirety two and then like that's You're one basically character, assigning that's one, you know. digital to analog data yeah and and this is something that blew me away no extant which means current existing birds have teeth yeah and that's because the you know the clade of birds that survived was toothless. I mean, in the Cretaceous, you had all these birds, and tooth loss, a beak evolved like twenty times. I don't know how many times it evolved, but it evolved many times, both within birds and with among non-avian dinosaurs. For example, like um, you know, a very derived oviraptorosaurs all have beaks, and you know, cetacosaurs have beaks and no teeth. Yeah, and no teeth, and no teeth. And there were birds though that had beaks and teeth. There would be teeth in the back and a beak in the front kind of thing. And I mean, all sorts of different combinations because tooth loss evolves so many times. Well, if you've ever seen a, a parrot bite a carrot, you realize you don't need teeth to chop your finger off. Owie. Yeah. Well, parrots have like crazy, highly modified skulls. There there were unfortunately no Cretaceous parrots. We don't see that level of diversity. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it, 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 actually, most of these birds had very... dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of parrots here in Pasadena, as you probably know. 
But anyways, okay, so let's talk about why do I think birds are troodontids. There's, you know, both morphological information, like I said, for example, the shared absence of a ossified sternum in Archaeopteryx and Sapiornis and in all troodontids. But then again, you have all these other birds with ossified sterna. Jomiosaurs have ossified sterna, so... That means the sternum is two bones that joins together? Yeah, so, um, you know, in dromaeosaurids and, and most dinosaurs, they have two plates, and then in, in early birds, these two plates fuse into one plate. And then eventually it, there evolves like this downward projecting um, structure called a keel. A keel on a boat. Exactly. And uh, that keel separates the two giant breast muscles. And like this expansion of the sternum and the development of the keel is basically to increase the surface area available for these flight muscles, which became very large as animals first evolved flight and then also evolved to be better at flying, right? Because the earliest bird probably wasn't very good at flying and it didn't fly anything like a living bird because it lacked all these skeletal modifications. But these slowly accrued over, you know, the first 80 million years of avian evolution. And then eventually, then you have the big uh, KT extinction and only one group of birds survives. And this is called Neornithes. And it's basically crown birds. All birds remember this members of this group and the members that survived none of them had teeth so all their relatives don't have teeth because like teeth is one of those things that like i think it's called dolo's law that like some features once lost can't be regained i see and they say teeth might be one of these features i mean that's at least what i remember being taught when i was studying paleontology a long time ago i haven't looked into the updated theory on that uh, but there's also a lot of behavioral evidence, fossilized behavior that links birds with troodontids. For example, Anchiornis was able to ingest pellets. It's the only dinosaur we know of that had this behavior, which we also see. The digestion was bidirectional. Yes, exactly. So like everybody's dissected an owl pellet. That's what I'm talking about. Like, you know, when uh, birds ingest things or like barf up things that they can't that are more difficult for them to digest whereas other dinosaurs like t-rex and apparently also microraptor which is another flying dinosaur it's a flying dromaeosaurid they just the st food just stayed in their stomach forever you know went out for the a long end. time and yeah and went out the other end so this is like uh and also there's a really famous dinosaur specimen that's really beautiful also from Liaoning, and it's called mei long which means sleeping dragon and it was um killed in a pyroclastic flow that was the word I was looking for earlier. But so, um, you know, it's just like a, a flow of hot ash just came and just killed it instantaneously while it was sleeping. And it's sleeping like a duck sleeps, you know, with its like oh, head tucked yeah. underneath its wing. Oh, so again, these are like beautiful. behavioral evidences that link these two groups together in addition to the skeletal evidence that we also see. So my vote is for troodontids, but it's definitely something that hasn't been worked out. Like there was a paper that came out this week in Current Biology, and they did their big analysis, which is still much smaller than mine. And they said that, you know, birds uh, evolve also from Anchiornis, but they say Anchiornis is not a troodontid. So what came before troodontid? What is totally unlike any bird or avian dinosaur? Well, I guess then you have to move back outside of Peniraptora. Once you get into Peniraptora and you have all these small dinosaurs with proto with feathers. I mean, before feathers, what were they before there were even proto feathers? Well, then you look at primitive clades of theropods like Compsognathus or like, you know, 
pre-Silurosaurian theropod dinosaurs. So you know, it's somewhere within this group Theropoda, which we know because obviously... Theropods are three toes and bipedal. Four toes, yeah. Three weight-bearing toes. Because of course in birds, that fourth toe that's not weight-bearing reverses itself and becomes the halix, which then allows birds to perch, to grip things. But of course, this adaptation was absent in the earliest birds. It, it was absent in Archaeopteryx um, and some other primitive taxa that haven't been described yet. Thumb was absent. Or the yeah, toe? no, it 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 wasn't reversed. Oh, oh, right, it was present, right. but it was it was just kind of sticking off to the side, the same way as it does, you know, in other. So wait, so um, theropod has four toes, but three are weight bearing. That's why theropod sounds like three. Uh, I haven't heard <laughs> that. Like, I mean, I, yeah. Okay, Ray, what's your question? <laughs> yeah, Ray, you want to explain that for me? Okay, I'm half right. Theropoda comes from Greek, meaning wild beast, and theropods are a clade of dinosaurs characterized by hollow bones and three-toed limbs. We're way deep in the into the bushes here, and that's what I really appreciate now. I mean, having seen this revolution in uh, our thinking about dinosaurs and this argument with birds and dinosaurs, the farther back you go, the more complex and just fascinating this tree is. And there's so many ways. I'm just wondering how, instead of going before troodontids, how the birds come out of the troodontids in the, does that happen in the Cretaceous or does that happen back earlier? That's Jurassic, Jurassic. In the yeah. Jurassic. So imagine, imagine, ignore all the rest of the dinosaur tree. We're now only looking at troodontidae. So like right here is a yeah. node, troodontidae. And here you have your basal troodontids and you have blah, blah, blah. And then one lineage of troodontids, that's like Anchiornis, then like splits into birds okay. like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then like, you know, it's, yeah. Because Archaeopteryx and Anchiornis are so similar. They're, there's just one major difference and that the feathers on in Anchiornis are not asymmetrical. And also the wings are smaller, a little bit smaller. And it also has like proto wings on its hind limbs. But it seems that in the avian lineage of dinosaur flight, the hind limb feathers became shorter and reduced. Right. Whereas only in the dromaeosaur microraptor lineage that also evolved flight independently, these feathers on the hind legs became elaborated and then to the point that they also became aerodynamic features. But we do know that, you know, the animal that all these flying dinosaurs evolved from had feathers, long feathers on its hind legs. Yeah. And then you have one lineage of troodontids becoming volant birds, possibly. Okay. Right. right. And then you also have this other bizarre lineage that we don't really know how it fits into the tree called the Scansoriopterygidae. And it was actually the Scansoriopterygidae that made us realize that flight evolved multiple times within the dinosauria. So the first Scansoriopterygids that were described uh, was in 2002. And the earliest, there's only like five or six specimens that are known to date. And the first two that were described were babies or juveniles, early juveniles. Because they're juveniles, their skeleton isn't fully ossified. There's features that aren't preserved. But what you could see is that they had one digit on their hand that was hyper elongated. Yeah. And, you know, when we try to understand what a fossil animal is doing, we, of course, look for extant analogs, for modern analogs. So if you look at the, you know, living animal kingdom, the only animal with one hyper-elongate digit on its hand is the eye-eye. So in the first paper on Scansteropter rigids, they were like... Wait, what's an eye-eye?
bird or bat? An eye-eye is a primate, uh, a weird-looking like primate a with really... lemur-type thing? With, yeah, it kind of looks like a lemur. And it, and it has one really long finger that it uses for, like, inserting into rotting tree bark or tree trunks and probing out grubs. But what people also don't tell you is that it has super powerful jaws that it used to bite open the wood, and then it probes its finger in there. So, like, you kind of need both morphologies if you're going to have a, a similar ecological niche, right? And people weren't thinking about that when they suggested that Epidexipteryx was also like an eye-eye, because obviously, like, most of these guys don't have very powerful jaw muscles Anyways, okay, so they thought it was like an eye. They, they put that out there as a possible hypothesis for like that maybe this elongate digit had a feeding, was a feeding adaptation. And then, you know, like in 2015, we found a more complete, more ontogenetically mature specimen. So an older specimen, right? Like a adult, sub-adult. And uh, it preserved not only this elongate digit, but also this bone sticking out of the wrist and also soft tissue remnants of a membrane. So when you have a more complete specimen, scientists realize that that elongate digit was not a feeding adaptation, but actually more similar to the elongate digits of a bat or a pterosaur, and it was used to support a membranous wing. And the thing is, like, if you look at Microraptor, Rahonavis birds, they all fly with wings formed out of feathers be it all, only on their forelimbs or on the forelimbs and hindlimbs, but there are wings. The aerofoil is a soft tissue structure formed by a feather, right? But if you look at Scansoraptor rigids, their wings are soft tissue structure formed by a membrane, not wow. out of feathers. So, so it's much more like a bat or a pterosaur Did or flying squirrel. Did they die squirrel. out? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were very short-lived. Right. We only know of them in the Yanglao biota. They were a brief experimentation with flight. I got to say, Jingmei is one of the craziest looking beasts it's got that 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 bone coming out of its wrist and it's it's got sort of pterosaur kind of wing flaps and it, it looks like something from game of thrones or yeah. something and and i know that you've you've worked with artists have you not in bringing some of these beasts back to life and you tell them eh. yeah yes of course um, so, well, there's there's an artist. I didn't work with her, but I found her uh, illustration of Scansoriopterygids online. Her name is Emily Willoughby. I saw that. I love her, you know, like interpretation of Ichi. It is terrifying. Like it looks, you know, like you do not want to meet this animal you know, is, in the night. It is badass looking. Yeah. Well, speaking of weird beasties, what is the coolest fossil you've ever found or seen or in all your roaming through the collections of the museums? What is your moment, your crazy fossil moment? Everything excites me. That's just my personality. But, um, you know, if to like, you have to go back really far to like feel that first excitement. And um, I remember being in the field in Inner Mongolia when I was still an undergrad. And it was this really rich fossil locality. I mean, it's like Miocene, so like boring. But, um, you know, we're like finding oh. all these mammal fossils everywhere. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm kidding. I love the Miocene. Uh, I'm totally an, I'm an ageist. I'm like, it's, if it's not at least like 60 million years old, I don't care. Um, but it also makes it like hard to like relate to humans. Cause they're like, Oh, like a hundred years so long. And I'm like, no, it's not like, yeah, yeah. anyways, I found this tooth. And, uh, at the time, you know, we're in this big group of, of mammal, uh, paleontologist and nobody knew what the animal was what that tooth belonged to so i thought that was that was really cool you know that's like kind of a fun feeling to have possibly found something that's totally new what was the tooth what was it i never found out xing mei if you could get in the deep time machine and go back in time 
where would you go? When would you go? What time period would you go to? And where? And what would, when and where? But what would you like to see when you time traveled back? What would you like to look at? I think I would go to the Ediacaran fauna in Australia, you know, like 500, 600 million years ago, because these animals, these soft bodied animals, like it's, I mean, it's difficult enough to figure out what an animal looked like when you have its skeleton. But, you know, with these soft tissue fossils, these are like before vertebrate life exploded on Earth. Yeah, and there are these big, weird, some of them are big, some of them are small. There's like a lot of weird, weird animals and just these, these, like these faint soft tissue traces to try to understand what these animals were doing. Like it's really difficult. And so I would love to see what the Ediacarian fauna looked like when it was alive. I also love beaches, you know, and they were like in the ocean near shore. So that would have been cool. And also I have a fascination with seeing the moon when it was close to the earth because we know that the, ever since the moon has formed, it has been moving farther and farther away from earth 1.5 centimeters a year yeah can you imagine when the moon was just like boom like right there in the sky and like the tides would have been crazy you know like yeah that's wow. that's that would have been that would be my first choice of course there's like a million things i would love to see but um that's what first jumps out to me i love the moon well i'm surprised at that but that's really it's just a beautiful thought thinking about that giant moon and those weird animals I would have thought you would have gone to uh, the Jurassic of China, but uh, oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, well, like I said, like I study what I study, but I mean, I love I love all ancient life, you know, like it's got my trilobite tattoo to prove it. I'm not yeah, one of the snotty. Yeah, yet. I got mine. Both you guys have trilobite tattoos. All right, so I've got a question here. So science is under attack and because of social media and because of certain factions uh, on the planet today. Opinion is being touted as fact and, and science is being pushed under the rug. What can you as an educator and a paleontologist to help change people's opinion that science is something that's obviously verifiable, but that opinion, especially opinion on social media, is not fact and something to be taken with a grain of salt or questioned? So, well, I know what not to do, and that's not to get really drunk with your colleagues when you're in the field in South Africa and then go yell at these assholes online. That's definitely not what you should do. Uh, I've learned, I've learned my lesson. Um, okay. I would basically say that there's no hope for any adult who's already just set a dead set on their opinion. The, the best, the only thing we can do is change future generations. There's nothing you can do about these crotchety people who are just like, their mind is made up. So it's really about uh, getting people interested in science when they're young so that they look at the world in a different way, so that they're thinking in a different way. They're applying the scientific process to everything that they hear and they see. So, you know, I think the best thing to do is just stay out of it because it's a very volatile place. Scientists are being really, uh, you know, it's a very dangerous place for scientists. I know lots of scientists who have lost their careers because of the mob, the internet mob. And so I think, you know, it's really- but that's awesome. Not... That's awesome. Get them while they're young. And also we need to, we need to change the perception of what a scientist is. Because, you know, right now people think of scientists as like boring people, people who don't have fun. And the fact is that scientists, I would say, have one of the best careers that's out there. Um, it's an exciting job. You're constantly being challenged. Things are, con are always new, so you never get bored. Uh, there's tons of opportunity for travel. Uh, you can work all over the world. But right now, you know, there's this perception. Everybody wants to be cool. Everybody wants to be pretty, you know, and people think that these things can't 
you know, that they're exclusive, right? But they don't have to be, you know, we can show that you can be a girly girl who puts on all her makeup and wears heels and you can still be a badass scientist, you know, like you can be whatever you want to be and still, and, and science doesn't have to be separate from that. We're going to go extinct and in five million years, the earth's not even going to remember us or care at all. So like, you know, in the, in the grand big picture, you After know, it doesn't matter. Earth, we- <laughs> life finds a way. Life will survive us. Life uh, yeah. finds a way. <laughs> well, Jingmei, awesome. Thank you so much for being a paleo nerd and on our show. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a fun and lively chat with you guys. <laughs> Jingmei, I learned so much today and thank you for helping us, uh, you know, sort through uh, feathered dinosaurs. And I'm just blown away by your work and what you're doing. You're a role model for a lot of people. And And, uh, you're going to have an amazing time in Chicago. What an incredible museum that is. Yeah, come and visit me. I'll give you the Sioux behind the scenes tour. Cool. We'll be there. (laughs) Good luck. And thank you, Jingmei. Thank you. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Wow, there are so many names of birds and velociraptors. Birds and raptors and dinosaurs. I I really lost my place there at times, Ray. So did I, Dave. We're going to have to have links to the Anchiornis and the Ornithophids. We've got to have links to... Ornithomimids, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I mean, that's just the amazing thing with all these guests as we go back further into the evolutionary trees, how bushy those trees are. Yeah. And that's, you know, I mean, dinosaurs taking flight three, four, five times, and there's the one lineage that came out of that. Is that called convergent evolution? Yeah, well, convergent evolution is a different concept where different unrelated animals start assuming the same form. They just fill that niche and they have they converge in the same form. Oh, the same form. So, what is it when animals? What is it when animals independently evolve into a a, a niche? For example, this dinosaur develops flight, and this totally unrelated dinosaur develops flight. That is convergent evolution, different animals filling that same niche. And then they have kind of a very similar look to them. But we're talking about an evolutionary radiation where all these animals are splitting off and they're closely related. And the experts are the ones that really argue about this nub or that nub. And they do cladistic analysis, which is basically mathematical equations to see all the characteristics. And she's talking about some of those characteristics having like a thousand points on them with data. But uh, well, that, yeah, yeah, that was mind blowing because you're actually using hard algorithms and data to compare species and 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 families of Mesozoic birds. Yeah. And you know what really kind of blew me away? Jingmei was just a lot of fun to talk to. She's young. She's vivacious. And she has got Reiner Zangirl's job at the Field Museum as a curator of fossil vertebrates. And this is an old fellow that he's near and dear to me, man. Remind me, he's the guy that was kind of the start of the buzzsaw? Yes. Felix O'Brien? Yeah. Yeah. So it all comes around, man. It was just like a beautiful story. Like, what's your job? Wait, that's Reiner's job. I actually wrote like a memorial to Reiner uh, when he passed away at age 93. And uh, what a sweet guy he was. He took me under his wing. He taught me all kinds of things. Very patient with me. Get it? Took him. Ah, I get it. I get it. We've heard a lot about wings. (laughs) How many different, this is what's just so crazy. I mean, she mentioned all these names of birds and fossils that, just went right over my head because the names are complicated to even pronounce. 
you know, 10 syllables, but they all have Latin roots and Latin derivatives. Mm -hmm. So uh, how do you paleontologists remember all these words? Well, I'm a pseudo-paleontologist. Not, I'm not one, but uh, to uh, wrap your head around these names, it's kind of fun. Scientific names are that there's only one name given to a specific creature, right? And there are so many common names. So when you say red snapper, that means something completely, it's a completely different fish in the Atlantic than what we think of here in Alaska. Yeah, but that's not a scientific name. I know, I'm just saying, that's the beauty of a scientific name is it's a dead language that's not changing. Right. So the language is done, <laughs> you know, it's right. not morphing like the English language, all, all living languages are. Yeah, no, yeah, no. What? Everybody's saying, yeah, no, now, yeah, no. What's that? It's an expression that has creeped into the English language. It's, uh, it's a dichotomy. People are saying, yeah, no, I was doing this or doing that. Even newscasters are heard saying it. Huh. Remember when bad meant good and good meant bad? Yeah. Actually, <laughs> the thing that throws me with the kids when they say, that's really sick. It's like, that's a good thing? Well, that's been around for quite some time. That's really yeah, sick. Yeah, I'm showing my boomerage. Yeah, no. My boomerage. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. But you know, hey... Talking to Jing Mei gives me hope for the future. She's really bringing some uh, fresh thinking. And I think she had the best response to any guest we've had so far when I asked the question, how do we promote science and challenge opinion over fact? She said, the only thing you can do is get them while they're young and impressionable and they're learning. And that is such an awesome answer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's hope for the future there. Yeah. The next generation. Yeah. Let's let's end on an up note. Well, the birds are flying out there in the sky, and there's so many of them, and we can say with confidence that they are dinosaurs, and dinosaurs live, my friend, and that is so cool. So they're not rat with wings? <laughs> well, they are reptiles with wings, and yeah, they're reptiles. They're flying. <laughs> they're dinosaurs, man, so that's cool. That is cool. All right, Ray, I will talk to you next week. That was awesome. Always fun shooting the breeze with you, David. See ya. Thank you for listening to Paleo Nerds. Make sure to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening. If you want to learn more about what you heard today, check out our website, paleonerds.com. You'll find tons of pictures and links, including photographic evidence that today's guests and your hosts have been Paleo Nerds for a long, long time. Again, that's paleonerds.com. Thanks for listening. I'm a paleo.